In my early days as a Christian, Jonah was a big deal. Now, I know we've already had Sunday school pointed to. I didn't really go to Sunday school very much because I wasn't from a, a Christian family. But when I did start going to church, Jonah was still quite talked about quite regularly. And there were two things that I learned early on about Jonah, and both of them were to do with the fish. First of all, I was told you must, must believe that it literally happened. It's not a parable. You must believe that it's literally uh, uh, happening in history. And the second thing that I was told is that you must believe it's a big fish, not a whale. <laughs> and we were told that, you know, really, that, that's the big point. Thus ends the lesson of Jonah. It happened, and it was a big fish, not a whale. Now, it's true that Jonah is presented as a true story, not a parable. And it is true that it says fish and not a whale. Though, to be honest, in the Hebrew mindset, a whale was probably a fish uh, from the way that they would have looked at things. But the big lesson of Jonah is not about the fish. It's more than a miracle, um, what is going on in the book. It's more than just a miracle with a fish. Jonah is written about Nineveh. But it's there to teach Israel something. It's written about a foreign land, but it's there to teach God's own people. It's written about unbelievers, but it's a lesson for believers. It was written around the time around uh, 786 to 746 BC, when Jonah was an active prophet in the northern kingdom. That's about a generation before Israel would be carried off into exile by the Assyrians. The Assyrians' capital was... Nineveh. And it's in that context that the book of Jonah takes place. Nineveh, Assyria, was the enemy, and Jonah is sent to speak to them. Now there's only four chapters, so what we're going to do this evening is we're going to look at the book chapter by chapter, and they're going to be our headings uh, for this evening. The headings are actually from the Psalms, just to show the uh, continuity with the message, with the rest of the Bible. So firstly, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee? From your presence. Jonah in chapter 1 is told to go to Nineveh, the great city. And Nineveh at this time really was a great city. Almost certainly the largest city that the world had ever seen up until this point. About 120,000 people. Now for us today that's somewhere between the size of Wakefield and Harrogate. Which might not sound all that sort of grandiose in terms of a size of a city. But bear in mind that the entire global population at this point was probably less than the current population of the UK. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and that would matter uh, in the years to come, as that would be the country that would take Jonah's country into exile. They were the ascendant world power of the time, and they were the enemy. And if you notice, God tells you right at the beginning that he had seen their evil. He knows that they've been doing wrong, and he tells Jonah, his prophet, to go there. Jonah, on the other hand, has other ideas. Now, we must be careful here not to read in too much what we think from our own heads and ignore what goes later on. It's not that Jonah is scared so much, or reluctant, or nervous. Jonah does a runner, not because he fears for his life if he goes there, but because Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to receive help. He doesn't want them to be warned of the coming destruction. Sending Jonah is a kindness to the Ninevites. But Jonah doesn't want to give that kindness. Jonah doesn't want to give them a warning of what could happen. 
Because that would give them opportunity to turn from their evil ways and be saved. So because Jonah doesn't want that to happen, because he doesn't want his nation's enemies to survive, he wants them to perish, he runs away. He hops on a boat to Tarshish, probably a place in modern-day Spain. It was really their way of saying the westernmost place in the known world. God had told him to go east, and Jonah went west, the exact opposite direction to where he has been told to go. And he seems to think as well, in some sense, that he can flee from God's presence, as though God is only present in Israel. But God is not the God of Israel. God is God of the God of the whole world. And that's a lesson, in part, that Jonah is going to need to learn. It's not just God's people that God is the God of. So God stops him via a storm. We had a visual aid earlier on, <laughs> as the heavens opened. But this was an even bigger storm. Seasoned sailors were terrified. And yet we find Jonah sleeping soundly below deck. The soldiers wake him up. They cast lots to see who's responsible. And as Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Predictably, the lot falls on Jonah. And he explains his situation. He is a prophet of the God who made the heavens, the earth, and most relevant to this situation, the sea. Now the sailors knew that he was a prophet, they knew that he was running away from his gods, but all of their gods were fake, powerless, and limited to one area. They didn't know that his god was the creator of all things, including the very water that they were sailing on. So they asked him what they should do, and Jonah is clear. Throw him into the sea. I suggested that to Lewis before. We should stop the storm by throwing him outside. He wasn't up for that. (laughs) But throw him into the sea and it will all be over. And he's right. They make a last attempt to row to shore, but in the end they pray to the Lord. They ask for forgiveness and they throw him overboard. They then offer sacrifices and make vows to the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth and the sea. Jonah has accidentally converted a group of pagan sailors. God's grace spreads across the world. Now you can't help but read this chapter and think of the Lord Jesus. He too was in a boat in a storm, with seasoned sailors who were scared for their lives. He too was asleep below deck, but the contrast could not be greater. Jonah's only solution is to be thrown overboard. Jesus, on the other hand, is master of the wind and waves. He merely speaks, and the wind and the waves obey him. The God that Jonah was talking about is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Anyway, back to the chapter. The chapter ends with a great fish, a whale, great fish, that God had arranged to swallow him, and he's there for three days and three nights. And we move in to chapter two. You have delivered my soul from the depths. What follows is basically a psalm composed by Jonah. It thanks God for his salvation in sending a fish to rescue him. Now some take this as repentance by Jonah, but the word is never used. But it's certainly a recognition though that God is the one who saves, that salvation belongs to him. In a sense that he saves who he pleases, it's his choice. So Jonah has learned some of his lesson while he's in the fish, and the fish vomits him up on dry land, presumably back in Israel. Now Jesus speaks of this time in the fish as pointing to himself. Matthew 12, 38-40 says this, 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The time in the fish, the rescue from the depths, is a picture of Christ's resurrection. There's a sense in which Jonah is almost brought back from the dead. But with Jesus, of course, it was literal. He really was brought back from the dead. And the big sign for everyone there is the resurrection. And the time in the fish looks forward to it. Anyway, Jonah comes out of the fish. What happens now? Well, chapter 3. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. God speaks to Jonah again and he heads to Nineveh. And seemingly he preaches what God has told him. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that is a short sermon, isn't it? I mean, I know I don't, hopefully don't go on too long. But we don't know if that's the whole of his sermon or just a summary. It really depends on how much you think he's changed from chapter one. If he's not changed, maybe there was more. Maybe he told them a bit more about what they could do and what was coming, what was happening. If he hasn't, then maybe that was it. He just says that, no signs, no nothing, and then off he goes. Whatever it was, the response of the people to God's word is nothing short of incredible. The people call a fast. They put on sackcloth, those outward signs of showing repentance. Everyone from kings to beggars join in. And the king makes a decree that all must fast. And he himself, the king, covers himself in sackcloth and sits in ashes. And God, seeing their true repentance, relents from sending disaster. This generation will live. The book of Nahum, though, comes a generation later and speaks vividly of the terrible downfall of Nineveh. But for this generation, there's a reprieve. God sees their repentance and he honours it. Jesus speaks of these events in Luke 11, verse 32. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah's probably lacklustre sermon brought Nineveh to its knees in repentance to God. This evil empire, this pagan people, knew that they needed to turn to God or be wiped out. But when Jesus, the prince of preachers, comes, greater than Jonah, comes to his own people with the message to turn, they ignore him. So pagan Nineveh will rise up and condemn the people of Jesus' day. Because the people of Nineveh heeded the call to repent, whereas the people of Jesus' day didn't. Jonah, if you notice, didn't even tell them to repent, presumably, but they did it anyway. Now there's a big question that goes with this chapter. So was God lying when he said that Nineveh would be overthrown? Was he telling porkies? Well, this is the classic question, isn't it? But no. The very act of warning them showed that there was time for them to change their ways and turn to God. The people of Nineveh, not even knowing God, thought that there might be a chance that it would be averted. And Jonah, who knew God, thought that this was going to be the case all along. Which brings us neatly to chapter 4. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Jonah is not happy 
It sounds all polite there in chapter 4 that we have read to us before, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. It's sort of, you know, quite middle class, sort of nice. But it's uh, really, it's words like this. Jonah was broken to pieces greatly, badly. He was fuming. Those are the sort of words that it gets across. What has made him so angry? God's grace has made him angry. His mercy to sinners. Jonah wanted them gone. They were his enemies. And Jonah tells God that he knew that this would happen. He knew that God shows mercy and would show them mercy. And he doesn't like it. God shouldn't do it. Not the people like them. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of the older son in the parable of the lost son in Luke 15. It says this, but he was angry, this is the older son, and refused to go in. His father came out to him and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Both Jonah and the older son are angry with God for showing mercy to people that they deem undeserving. Jonah is so cross about what God has done that Jonah wishes he was dead. So God, in his mercy, teaches Jonah a lesson. Jonah goes and sits to the east of the city and waits to see what will happen. But he knows really what will happen. God causes a plant to grow up and shade Jonah from the hot Middle Eastern sun. For those of you who like plants and stuff like this, I looked it up. It's likely a castor oil plant or a gourd plant, which apparently have large leaves and grow in that area. I don't think we've got any in the back garden. No? Okay. But it's given, it says, to ease his discomfort. The word for discomfort and evil are, are the same in, in Hebrew. God shows his mercy, shows mercy for his evil, his terrible discomfort. And this makes Jonah very happy, exceedingly happy. The words are similar to how unhappy he was about what God had done to Nineveh. God's mercy to the Ninevites had made him exceedingly unhappy, but God's mercy towards his discomfort made him very happy. It shows that it's not God's mercy per se that makes him unhappy, but who God shows mercy to. In the morning, God causes a worm to come and attack the plant, and it withers and dies. And the sun beats down again, and Jonah's unhappy again. He's back to being angry and wishing he was dead, this time because the plant has gone. And you're left with Jonah in this crazy position of being angry and upset that God destroyed a plant. A plant. Yet equally angry and upset that God didn't destroy a city of 120,000 people. Jonah has more pity for a plant than he does for a whole city of people. And God calls him out on this. Down in Jonah 4, what we read earlier. But God says to Jonah, verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
that bit of cattle always gets a bit of a giggle, doesn't it? But the mention of cattle probably makes more sense when you think about the fact that Jonah seems more concerned about a plant than for people. Maybe he'd be upset that they're losing their animals. Maybe that would at least move him to some sort of compassion. But we don't find out. The story finishes there, and that question is left dangling with the reader. It's as though God is saying, what do you think? Was God wrong to show mercy to the Ninevites? Was he wrong to care for the people that he had made when Jonah cared more for the plant that he hadn't? Now, I don't think that the book of Jonah is there as an attack on those who enjoy gardening, as though if you're concerned with plants, that's a problem. But it's there to show us that so often we care about our own small, selfish interests than the larger, weightier matters that God is concerned about. Our love for the lost can pale into insignificance compared with our love for our own comfort. It did for Jonah. But the lesson of Jonah is a lesson of don't have that attitude. Don't be like Jonah who loved so little that he ran away, who hated so strongly that he wanted to die knowing that they would live. Really, it's a lesson for our evangelism. I'm thinking I need to hear it because it keeps coming up, doesn't it, over the last few weeks. Uh, No plan on my part. But where is our love for the lost? Is it greater than our love for our own comfort? You see, the message of Jonah is not so much about fish, but becoming fishers of men. And the question that we're left with is, not do you care about the great fish and, you know, was it a fish or a whale? But do we care for the fish? The fish out there, the people who need the gospel, the people that we're called to go to. Are we willing to overcome our own discomfort, our own prejudices, and go to the needy people out there, even if they upset us, even if they disagree with us, even if they don't like us? Because if not, we'll end up like Jonah, looking so petty at his little plant and ignoring the people that God had sent him to. Let's pray that God would keep our hearts loving the lost and change our hearts to love them more. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of Jonah. Father, thank you for all the ways that it points to the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he is uh, the Lord of the the winds and the waves. Father, thank you that he is um, creator of the universe. And Father, we pray that so many others would recognise this and bow the knee to King Jesus. Father, help us not to be those who love our own comfort uh, and our own things more than we love the people around us. Father, help us to be willing to take up our cross daily, to take the gospel daily and have those beautiful feet that bring good news to those who need it. Father, send us out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.